Let me invite you to take your Bibles and go back with me to Matthew chapter 4 this morning. Matthew 4. We had the privilege over the last few weeks to have my parents out here for a few weeks. Uh, it's good to see them for a while, be able to spend some time together. And uh, near the end of their time, they left on Thursday, but near the end of their time, I was meeting my dad somewhere. He had done some grocery shopping. And so he's like, hey, I got to go get something out of the car. He goes over to the car. He comes back with this uh, cylinder. And as soon as I saw it, I went, oh, I know what that is. Uh, he had been to Costco, and uh, he had a gift for Melinda. And he's like, uh, he hands them to me. They're the Sanders salted caramels, if you know what those are. Um, and he's like, now, these are for Melinda. Like, she gets to do what she wants with these and decides who has these. And uh, I'm like, in my mind, I did not say it to him, but I'm thinking that's no big deal because I don't like these things. Um, not generally a huge fan of caramel, getting all stuck in my teeth and whatnot. And I'm like, this is no problem. And he's like, I'm even going to text her to make sure that she knows that nobody else is supposed to have these. I'm like, great, no problem. So brought them home in my car. I said, Melinda, these are for my dad. She's like, oh, wow, like, this is great. She likes these things. And I see her take the lid off. And, you know, there's that little foil seal on the inside. And, you know, I kind of lost track of what was going on. And I'm thinking, okay, well, great. She's happy. Um, that's good. And probably a half hour later or so, I'm kind of wandering around in the kitchen, and they're in the adult candy section in the ca cabinet. I've told you about that before. They're up there. I know where they are. And I'm like, maybe those things are good. I'm kind of hungry. Like, maybe I need to give this another chance, because most of the time, that's a really easy pass. And I'm kind of having this mental argument. And I went so far as to open the cabinet to get them down to unscrew the lid off of this thing, and Melinda comes in. And I'm noticing, oh, the seal is still on these things. And so I put it back on. I stuck it up there, and she's like, did you have one of my caramels? And I'm like, nope, I didn't. I passed the temptation. Like, it's all good. Like, I actually did not have any of her caramels. I didn't have permission. I was just checking, right? <laughs> just checking to make sure that they were all still intact and all of that. But, you know, thankfully, at least for this illustration... That was not a temptation I gave into. We're going to look at temptation this morning in Matthew chapter 4. And that came to mind because we can look at temptation to sin and realize both biblically and experientially that there are certain temptations that really lead to besetting sin. It's habitual. It's discouraging. It's like, oh man, we're here again. And we're reminded in Hebrews 12 to... Uh, lay aside these sins which just so easily beset us and realize there are some, it's like in, my, in your mind right now already, there might be like, yeah, there's that in my life. And you just know that that one grabs you and it's a battle. And yet I think there are also times where we're not being plagued by besetting sin. We're kind of surprised in the moment and go, what was I thinking? Why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why did I behave that way? Because temptation caught us off guard and the next thing you know, We've done something that biblically is defined by sin and consequentially brings the devastation or deception that sin brings with it. In Matthew chapter 4, we have the wonderful privilege of watching our Savior, Jesus Christ, interact with temptation. And as we listen to his words, as we observe even his interaction with the devil and what the devil says, I think we do well to go, what principles can I glean to help me in my battle with temptation? Whether it's 
of besetting sin that tempts you or whether it's that time where you are surprised, caught off guard, and like, I don't even normally like this, think this, do this, but it got me. To go, well, how can I learn from what Jesus does here? And towards that end, we are going to actually spend two weeks in this text. We'll spend this this morning, and then we'll have a missionary next week, and then, Lord willing, on the 29th of October, we'll return to Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11 again. In my life, I think that's helpful, and I'm hoping in our church life, in your personal life, it will also be helpful to go, hey, watch out, be on guard, you're in a battle, you do have an enemy, he is walking about seeking whom he may devour, you should be sober, you should be vigilant. And hopefully this morning will serve as a reminder to that end. And then as we wait and go a couple weeks down the road, maybe that reminder will be needed once more. To go, God, help me to be on guard against the deception and devastation that temptation brings. We want to begin this morning by looking at the situation of the temptation. We're going to make five observations as we do so. Down the road, we're going to look at not just the situation of the temptation, um, but the substance of the temptations and then the solution to the temptations. We'll get to just a little bit of the solution at the end of our time this morning. As we look at this situation, the first of our five observations is this. Jesus' temptation tests his righteous perfection. Jesus' temptation tests his righteous perfection. It's very important when we get to Matthew chapter 4, we keep in mind what has just taken place in Matthew chapter 3. And I want to underscore that in our thinking since it's been a while since we were in Matthew chapter 3 at Jesus' baptism. Because if you remember, even as we went through scripture reading this morning, when John is seeking to baptize people and he's preaching to them, he's got a message that mankind needs. Repent. Turn from your sin. Change your thinking. Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The the king is present. Jesus is on this earth. The Messiah has come. So repent. And then we're introduced again to that group of people who comes to John to be baptized. And John, in essence, says, why are you here? Who sent you? Who warned you to run away from the wrath that is coming against sin? You remember John's explanation to the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Bring forth fruit, works, meet for repentance. Like, let your behavior, your lifestyle match a change of mind, a turning from sin. Because even though they were religious leaders, they weren't getting it right. And then we come to Jesus, who comes to John to also be baptized, to identify with this message that their people should be repenting, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and Jesus is baptized. But there's a key phrase as John initially argues with Jesus and says, I I don't need to baptize you. You need to baptize me. And Jesus' response in Matthew 3, verse 15 was this, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. He's telling John, you need to allow this to occur because we must meet God's standard. We must do what's right. Again, that's the simple idea of righteousness is meeting the standard, meeting God's standard. And we talked about when we were there that if we're going to pursue righteousness, there's kind of two sides to the coin of righteousness, if you will. One is uh, uh, the positive side, which means we do add certain things. We do certain things. That's the baptism. 
okay? We might think of it like uh, God has told us to be kind. Like, if we're a believer, kindness should be part of who we are, okay? It should be a positive quality. We can look at the fruit of the Spirit and gain many more positive qualities. That's part of meeting the demands. It's like, if I, if I try to avoid lying or stealing or all these different sin issues, but I don't have the positive aspect of love, it's pointless. Righteousness has positive actions, positive qualities. Righteousness also then on the other side of the coin has the absence of the negative, the absence of sin. And as we come into Matthew chapter 4 and see Jesus tempted, we realize that as Jesus fulfills all the demands of righteousness, he not only has done the positive in being baptized, he's going to show us that he also avoids the negative. He's demonstrating his righteous perfection. That's a wonderful truth for us today, one that we can very quickly overlook. He can identify with us in our humanity. Hebrews chapter 4 is going to tell us that we have not a high priest who cannot be touched with a feeling of our infirmities. He knows what it's like to battle human flesh like you and I do. And yet we're told he was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. He was tempted in all points like as we are, but he never And because he never sinned, you and I have hope. You see, we don't have a king. We don't have a savior or rescuer who really couldn't make it himself. We have a perfect king, a perfect rescuer, a perfect savior who has shown, here's what success, here's what victory over sin looks like. And because he won the battle... There is hope for you and I in our battle with sin as well. You remember that, those wonderful verses at the end of Romans chapter 7 where the Apostle Paul is talking about this internal struggle and he's like, the good that I want to do, I don't do, positive aspects of righteousness, and the bad that I don't want to do, the negative aspects of what you're supposed to do, he's like, I end up doing. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank Jesus Christ. Like victory is possible because Jesus' temptation tests his righteous perfection. Certainly not just in Matthew 4, but Jesus, all the time he was on earth and in heaven, has lived in complete righteousness. That's our first observation. Our second observation is that Jesus' temptation follows the Father's commendation. Jesus' temptation follows the Father's commendation. Like, we can kind of read verse 17 and go, okay, yep. Mm-hmm. It, 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 just for a moment, imagine yourself being there, right? The crowds have all been present. There have been many people being baptized. You remember in John's baptism, baptism, they're saying people are coming from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. Like People from all over are coming to John to be baptized. And then there's this interaction with John and Jesus, Again, imagine being there, seeing Jesus baptized, and then all of a sudden hearing a voice from the sky. Like we Again, at least for me, I tend to read this with such familiar eyes that I don't think, like, what would that have been like? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. That's what was heard. 
That was what was evident to the people who were there. And in fact, we'll jump ahead a little bit to our message two weeks from now. But the devil knows this. Because as the devil tempts Jesus, what does he say? If you be the Son of God, and the grammatical construction of it, we could translate very literally, since you are the Son of God. We know this to be true. They've heard it. And now that's going to be put to the test. Jesus has been identified as God's Son, and quickly following that triumphant occasion, temptation occurs. You ever experienced that in life? Things are going well. You've made some good decisions. You, you, man, it's like, wow, I, I feel close to God. I've seen God work. I've seen answered prayer. And then all of a sudden, in the moment of victory, it's like temptation just nails us. I, I think about it biblically, right? Like the most stark example to me is that section in 1 Kings 17 19, where 1 Kings 17, Elijah shows up before King Ahab. It's like, Ahab, it's not going to rain. And it doesn't for three years. Because Elijah's walking with God, he's praying, and it's not raining. And God provides for Elijah, right? By the brook Cherith, ravens, okay? He goes to Zarephath, he provides through a widow. The widow's son is raised from the dead again, right? You get to 1 Kings 18, and you have this tremendous conflict between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, where Elijah sees God work powerfully. I mean, this is amazing spiritual victory kind of stuff. And then you get to chapter 19. And you think, Elijah can take on anything, right? Anything. Elijah's seen amazing victory. And in 1 Kings 19, Elijah's like, oh no, God kill me, because Jezebel's going to. Elijah's done. He's cooked. Like, he's giving in to incredibly wrong thinking. And God has to very kindly, graciously come alongside Elijah. You want another example? Go to Mark 8 in your mind. You can turn there if you want. But you remember Peter's interaction with Jesus in Mark 8? Who do men say that I am? Well, some say that you're Elijah. Like, they're processing. And, well, who do you say that I am? You remember Peter's words? You are the Christ! Like, this is awesome! They get it! He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. What a declaration from Peter. Okay? This is good. And yet, in just a couple verses, what's happening? Jesus is taking Peter and saying, Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. Because Peter, after declaring Jesus to be the Christ, rebukes Jesus and says, Jesus, that's not happening. We're not going to allow you to suffer. We're not going to see that take place. And as a result, Peter gets rebuked by Jesus himself. From tremendous spiritual victory to temptation to rebuke. In our lives, we would do well to be on guard. Satan loves to rob you of the joy of growth and victory by turning around in those moments where things seem to be good and going, here, let me tempt you. Let me see if we can undermine all of that goodness. And then what happens when you give in? I'll never win always the same. I'll never find a way out. And now our mind is just beating us up. The devil is trying to take us further into discouragement because we failed. So we make observations about the situation of temptation. Jesus' temptation tests his righteous perfection. It follows the Father's commendation. 
Third, it happens within God's sovereign direction. It happens within God's sovereign direction. I keep wrestling with this one in my mind. Like, can I say it that way? Can I not say it that way? But look at chapter 4, verse 1. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. The text clearly tells us that the Spirit of God led Jesus to the place where he would be tempted. Theologically, there's some things that are very important that we understand here. Okay, very important. They, most of them are derived from James chapter 1, reminding us that in no way is God ever responsible for temptation itself or our response to temptation if we sin. God will allow us to be tempted. God will allow us to be put in a situation where our faith is tested. We, Job 1 gives us insight into that as God asks Satan, hast thou considered my servant Job? And Satan starts to cast his person. Well, that's just because. And so God allows Satan to tempt Job. God is never culpable. He's never morally responsible for that wrong. But he will allow our faith to be tested. James 1 says it this way in verse 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But God is never at fault for our temptation or our sin. Never, 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 right? Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempted any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lusts and enticed, right? It is our weakness. It is our fault. And then I love that verse in verse 16, because I think it's instructive to us. He says, do not err, my beloved brethren. The way we typically say it is, don't get this wrong. Like, you're going to be tempted to get this confused. Temptation does not come from God. Don't get this wrong. What does come from God? Next verse. Every good and every perfect gift cometh down from above. Here's what comes from God, not temptation, but the good, the complete, the needed things in life comes from God. God may allow us to be tempted, but he himself does not tempt us. In fact, when you think biblically about this truth, God always gives us a way out. Right? 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful. Not occasional, not intermittent. God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. Just because temptation occurs doesn't mean you've failed or you're outside of God's care. Right? Just because temptation occurs doesn't mean that you failed or you're outside of God's care. He knows. He gives what's needed for victory he will help, so stay in the fight against sin. Observation number one, Jesus' temptation tests his righteous perfection. Number two, it follows the Father's commendation. Number three, it happens within God's sovereign direction. Fourth, Jesus' temptation occurs in relative isolation. Jesus' temptation occurs in relative isolation. It says, then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. The timing here wasn't in the triumph of baptism, but is in the testing of the wilderness. 
right? The text very clearly tells us, you know, we've been at the baptism. We know there are multitudes present, but the Spirit of God has directed Jesus away for a purpose, and in that time, Satan takes advantage of the moment. It is Jesus by himself. In fact, it's not till we get to verse 11 that we find out, okay, now the angels are coming back to minister to him. Jesus is in isolation as he is tempted. Again, temptation can occur at any time and in any place. I don't want us to miss that. Temptation can occur at any time and in any place. But I think it would be foolish for us to miss the reality that the devil often likes to use isolation, privacy, secrecy, darkness to provide opportunity for temptation to occur. You can go ahead and, again, go back in your mind to Elijah. Was it there with the crowds before the altar when all of a sudden he's struggling with his thinking? No, he's all by himself. And while he's all by himself after incredible victory, he's like, she's going to kill me. And now he's having problems in his mind. You know, we live in a day, even when people are present, because what we they don't know what we're looking at, what we're doing with devices. We feel like things are private. And then certainly being actually alone, that isolation, that loneliness provides opportunity for temptation. I would challenge us, encourage us to be on guard because sin likes to take us when, or temptation likes to take us when we're isolated, lead us to sin, and then we feel all the more isolated. If anybody knew, if people found out, what would they think of me? Recognize the potential danger of isolation. In fact, a text that's been on my mind a number of times lately is that text in Galatians 6.1. It's designed to help all of us in church. Brethren, by the way, brethren, um, that doesn't say pastors. That doesn't say deacons. It's like an all-Christian text, okay? Not just a me text. It's like an all-Christian text. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault... Ye which are spiritual, restore such an one. In a spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Not condescending because you're never tempted. That's dishonest, right? But to go, you know what? The church ought to be a place. Christians ought to be a resource to go, you know what? I am struggling. This has grabbed a hold of me. I need help. What does the next verse in Galatians 6 say? Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Not, well, don't talk about it because that's inconvenient and that's uncomfortable and I'm not sure what to do. Okay? Temptation happens, occurs in relative isolation. Fifth and final observation here is that Jesus' temptation transpires at a vulnerable occasion. We could say isolation already made Jesus vulnerable, but Jesus' temptation transpires at a vulnerable occasion. Verse 2 says, When he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. Yeah, I get that! Right? Like, I struggle fasting for like a meal. Okay? And we're going, Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And again, some like me might be inclined to read this as a statement of the obvious. Well, yeah, I would be hungry too, okay? And yet, for others, there's a really important corrective reminder here. 
that Jesus had taken on flesh. Uh, like, it doesn't just say Jesus was uh, fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and was doing great because he was God. Right? Like, even right now, some of you struggle to listen because you're hungry. And you have breakfast. Okay? But we're reminded here, Jesus in his humanity, yes, he fasted. Yes, this is an incredible long fast. But as a result, he is hungry. And that's when temptation happens. Now, I should say, both Mark and Luke, who also record Jesus' temptation, Mark's account is very, very brief. Luke's is in Luke chapter 4. Mark's in Mark 1. Both tell us that during the 40 days, Jesus was tempted, like, intermittently through the 40 days. What we're reading about here in Matthew 4 seems to be the culmination of those 40 days of temptation. So here are three incidents, three examples of that kind of temptation. Just remind you as we consider this thought that Jesus is at a vulnerable occasion. He is hungry. He is alone. That you and I also have an enemy who wants to destroy. He knows when you're vulnerable. It could be because you are hungry or tired or stressed out or overwhelmed with what's going on at work or discouraged because of how your marriage is going, parenting is going, your relationship with kids is going. It could be that you're discouraged in your walk with God. The devil knows when we're vulnerable. Okay, He knows when we're vulnerable. Don't give in. Yield to grace to see victory. We've spent our time so far looking at the situation of the temptation. Again, Two weeks from now, we'll look at the substance of the temptations. But I do briefly want to ask us to think about the solution to the temptations. And kind of just as an introduction to verses 3 through 11, I want you to walk through a little thought exercise with me. You can do it in your mind. If you have a pen and paper, you can do it on pen and paper as well. might be helpful to you. I realize different people are helped in different ways. But I want you to list in your mind or on a sheet of paper some sins that just come up in your mind. Maybe they're sins you struggle with. Maybe they're just categorically sins, and you're like, yep, that's wrong, that's a sin. Yep, that's wrong, that's a sin. Yep, that's wrong, that's a sin. Uh, Like, try to get like five, seven, maybe ten down. We don't need any overachievers, no more than ten. You got them? I don't want you just to skip the exercise here. You got them? Like, if I call on you, you got one? Or two? Or three? You got them? Okay. Now what I want you to do with those sins is tell us what verses say that that's wrong. So maybe on your list, you're like, hey, I put lying down. Okay, why is lying wrong? Like, is there a verse that says that? Or do you just think, well, that's what I always believed? And I, Well, I think the Bible says it somewhere. And Well, I know. I know that I know. I just don't know why I know that I know. Like, what verse says that? What about stealing? What about lust or immorality? What about anger? What about drunkenness? What about unkindness? What about hate? You got some verses down? Like again, maybe, maybe I really should have you like take your pen out and write these things down. 
Because I would guess for many of us, we can come up with a longer sin list than we can come up with verses to tell us why those things are wrong. And I think that is something we ought to consider as we look at how Jesus interacts with temptation. Because as you know well, when you look at the solution to temptation, as we look at Jesus' interaction with the devil, what does he do in all three temptations? In verse 4 he says, but he answered and said, it is written. And then you go to verse 7, and he says, it is written. And you go to verse 10, and he says, it is written. In our day, we might be inclined to go, well, I always grew up hearing, well, my pastor says, well, the church says, well, I think there's a verse somewhere. Well, let me just Google it real quick. Instead of coming from our mind and saying, it is written. We need further evidence than just Jesus' example, which we don't. Think about the wonderful wisdom of Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy, I think your word says, by taking heed thereto according to thy word. With my whole heart have I sought thee. Not like, hey, on Sundays here and there, intermittently, sporadically, occasionally reading my Bible, often not, never memorizing. With my whole heart have I sought thee, O let me not wander from thy commandments. Thy word have I kept on my shelf, have I brought to church, have I looked up occasionally online when I have a problem. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. We live in a wonderful day, like a wonderful day. We talked about this a couple Wednesday nights ago. Like, we hold the printed word of God. We have it available on our devices. We can Google good resources very, very quickly that generations previously could only have dreamed of. And as a result, for a lot of us today, we don't actually know what the word says. We know where to go find what the word says, or we think we do. Or we have some kind of concept up here. But I would challenge you, strongly challenge you, that we do best when we agree with the psalmist, when we follow Jesus' practice and say, thy word have I hid in my heart. It's there. It is available for the Spirit of God to use that I might not sin against thee. Like, do you know the last verse you memorized? Like, what's cool about Jesus' interaction with the devil when he says it is written, some of them are things that say, don't do this. Like, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Like, here's a sin. Don't tempt the Lord thy God. That's a sin. But there's other parts that aren't just like anti-sin verses. There are other verses that talk about God's provision for us. Like, hey, you know what God has given? I don't need to turn these stones to bread. You know why? Because man doesn't need bread alone. What man needs is what God has given in his word. 
even to go, well, you know what the purpose of my life is? That I would worship the Lord only. That's the last temptation of the three. Like, there are other verses there. There are other thoughts there. And we would do well to go, as I seek to combat sin, yes, I want to know verses as to why things are wrong, but I also want to memorize about who my God is and how he wants me to live for him so that the Spirit of God can use that when temptation comes. Why do we say it that way? What's that text that talks about spiritual warfare? Or at least one of the texts? Probably the most well-known is Ephesians 6, right? And we're told to stand, to be ready, to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the wiles of the devil. Well, the devil has these plans, these tricks, these schemes, these wiles to come after you. So put on the armor of God. What's the sword? The sword is the word of God. Who uses that sword? It is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. See, when the Word of God is in us, the Spirit of God uses God's Word to help us in our battle against sin. Because we start down something, and there's that voice in our conscience, the Spirit of God is working, and it's like, you can't talk that way. That's not right. That's not true. That's sin. I believe we should find it very instructive for us as to Jesus' solution for temptation as he says, it is written, it is written, it is written. He gives us the example of going to the Word. As we wrap up today, I wonder where you stand in your battle with temptation, your your battle with sin. Perhaps, as we walk through this this morning, the Spirit of God has just been saying, that right there needs to be dealt with. Can I just remind you, like, we have a wonderful God who says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He does, with the temptation, make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. It is worth repenting because the king has come. He has achieved victory over sin. Say, you know what? I'm going to make that right. God, I'm coming to you again. I feel even discouraged coming to you again because I've done this thousands of times. But God, would you forgive me? God, would you help me? God, would you give me grace? Beyond repenting and resting in the forgiveness that God gives, maybe there's a need to be on guard, to be sober, to be prepared by going, God, I I need to spend time in your word, yes, reading it, maybe studying it, but God, I need to memorize what your word says. I'm losing these battles because I have no arrows. I I have no texts that are there for the Spirit of God. So God, would you help me? Would you give me grace? Maybe find a brother or sister in Christ to go, hey, can we just help each other here? Like we're supposed to uh, help one another, to bear one another's burdens. Can you, can you just help me be accountable to memorize this truth? Because I need this right now. We do face an enemy who's seeking to destroy. Christ has set the example in that he never sinned. But even in that example has pointed us to the solution in the battle. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for
this text of Scripture recording for us how Jesus achieved victory over temptation with Satan. Lord, I pray for each believer here that you would help them to take the needed action steps to pursue being right with you, whether that's repenting of sin, confessing it, seeking your forgiveness, whether that's a need to be vigilant, to be armed with Scripture, that, Lord, you would be pleased in us to recognize that there are those times where we are just, we're, we're, we are vulnerable to temptation and to seek to reach out to you, to reach out to brothers and sisters in Christ, that we might be pleasing to you, bringing glory to your name. In Jesus' name I pray.